Hello, and welcome to Technology and Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. This interview will be presented in two parts. This is part one. I'm speaking with James Miller, author of Planetary Spacecraft Navigation, and also um, someone with uh, decades of experience. So, Jim, you've uh, agreed to talk to me more about um, some of the history of of some of the work you've done. So I guess the first thing we'll talk about is uh, nuclear power, This the the incident or events you had mentioned to me by email. Yeah, okay. Well, Well, the reason uh, I mentioned this was uh, it it set up a uh, kind of uh, an experience that that I repeated many, many times throughout my life. But this was the first time I ran into this, had this experience. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and uh, at the time, I didn't know what was going on. I just kind of, and I figured it out many years later. But what happened was I was working on the nuclear submarine uh, safety, reactor safety. And at the time, uh, there, there, I had a chart one time that has, it has all the papers that have been published on, uh, on, on uh, reactor safety and stuff like that. And there was maybe about 100 total papers ever written. Right now, there are over 80,000. Mm-hmm. So my, my little work was here at the very beginning of nuclear power. or not, not Well, nuclear power being, being uh, uh, di- uh, written in papers for the public, let's mm-hmm. say, because they, they generally all the work that was done on the Nautilus and the earlier submarine, nuclear submarines, all, it's all secret. Like I had a top secret clearance. I had the same clearance that uh, Oppenheimer had. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so anyhow, I, I started working, and it, and it struck me as odd, you know, that why I'm 23 or 20, I'm uh, 20, 22 years old, mm-hmm. and I just graduated from college, and, and I'm, I'm working uh, uh, and, and in an area that I kind of thought was really important, but why would they have somebody as young as me actually working in this area? And I thought, they, oh, the reason is because they have decided that nuclear reactors are so safe that you don't have to worry about them. All the safety work has been done, and and uh, they're, they're totally safe. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, so I would do analysis, and then whatever analysis that I would do, they didn't pay much attention to it, if any at all. I'd write a report, and, it was, and that was it. So, so I, I was doing a lot of work on analog computers, and, and I set up all the equations, and then I could actually simulate an actual nuclear reactor accident. So I can make the accidents happen on the, on the analog computer. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of them was... Um, uh, if you if you kind of step on the gas and put the pe- pedal to the metal all the way to the floor, you you, you get an in- a rapid increase in power. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the turbines, and then and that drives the ship. But then the reactor doesn't respond to that till maybe 20 seconds later because what hap- happens is uh, cold water gets dumped into the lines that go back, and then it goes into a heat exchanger, and then some cold water eventually gets to the reactor. And the cold water makes the reactor increase in power. Mm-hmm. And this takes 20 seconds or 30 seconds, something like that, maybe even longer. So I had that all simulated. And, and uh, I actually worked on, there was an incident that happened that required a special kind of startup. So I did, I did an analysis of that. And, and then the Navy quickly informed us that we're never going to do that as a test. So I said, if you don't do it as a test, you're going to do it for real when you have the problem. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I, I kind of thought, thought that I don't want to spend the rest of my life not being paid attention to. So I quit. Mm-hmm. 
and I wound up at the Lockheed Martin company working in the nuclear division on an actual nuclear reactor that they were building. Mm-hmm. And this was about what year? 1964. Okay. 60, wait, 60. I'm trying to get I remember it was right after Kennedy was assassinated. So, so, so the, uh, my manager who, um, hired me, he, uh, he, he, he said, well, I want you to do, before I get to work on this other reactor that we were actually building, I want you to analyze the, the PM3 plant in um, Antarctica mm-hmm. and do a safety analysis on that. Can you do it? And I said, uh, yeah, I could do it. And he said, I said, I'll, I'll do exactly what I did on nuclear submarines at Westinghouse. It's the same, it's the same kind of plant. Mm-hmm. So he says, fine, okay, go ahead and do it. So I started analyzing this uh, I put it on the analog computer. We had an analog computer, and I put all the equations on there. And I and I noticed that when 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 I do a startup accident, you know, when I when I increase the power, let's say from ten percent to nine to a hundred percent, there's a there's a, a a power transient that goes up and it overshoots, and then comes back down and then levels off. Mm-hmm. So you can make it go up and then down and then levels off. And and uh, we we always say that well that's the, the analysis is very conservative because we're not we're making assumptions in the uh, in the modeling that uh, doesn't really represent it. So that uh, the actual the actual transient is a much less than that. What's going on inside the reactor is less than that because of because we we're, we're, we're have a conservative model and all that. Well, I kind of realize that there's something known as conservation of energy, mm-hmm. and a, a nuclear reactor. I'm looking at the power it's producing a lot of energy. So uh, what I was wondering is why doesn't the submarine just melt on? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it doesn't have that much heat capacity. Metal, does, Water has lots of heat capacity. Metal doesn't. Mm-hmm. So I started doing it, bigger, looking at these equations a little more carefully. And, and, uh, uh, and I got some actual real power plant data. I could never get that when I worked on nuclear sun Westinghouse. They just wouldn't, they wouldn't stop a submarine and, and let me do a, some experiments on it to check <laughs> not. See, they, 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 they said, we've already done all that. There's all safety. It's, you don't have to worry about it, you know, all that kind of crap. But I, I actually got some real, a real transient now. And I looked at it, and, and I thought, oh, that's interesting, because it kind of matched the, the transient without the overshoot. And I thought, well, okay. That, so they're thinking that that's the reality. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I think I see what's going on here. Inside the reactor, it's really overshooting. But the, but the instrumentation is telling you that there's a lot less overshoot. It, hmm. It's delaying it and it's, it's smoothing it out. Hmm. So I, I I was aware of some modifications to, to the equations that would give you a more accurate modeling, but we were expressly forbidden by the Navy for using these equations. Because they said that that's not right, and it's un, it's a, it's essentially a fuel a fuel temperature coefficient. You 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 shut down the reactor based upon uh, the temperature of the fuel, and and we just ignore the temperature of the fuel and don't use that to shut to, to create negative reactivity. And then there's a, the other thing would, would, was that there's a delay in the in the instrumentation due to due to the heating. Mm-hmm. You had a thermometer stuck in a big metal thing, and it took about 20 seconds for that metal thing to heat up and tell you what was going on so it smoothed things out so i real i started to realize that what's going on inside the reactor is actually an over power overshoot very dangerous because it could melt down the core 
Mm-hmm. And so, fortunately, even though I hate to say this because I really like the guy, my the, my, the manager who I told that I was going to do this exactly like I did at Westinghouse, he died of leukemia hmm. about three months after I had started working. Oh, wow. And he, I suspect that he was subjected to some radiation in the early days of the program. Because I, I th- I've talked to people who looked into nuclear reactors, and they could feel the pressure of the radiation on their eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Oh, and wow. I'm saying, wait, if, you're, if, you're, if you can feel it, it's really too much. <laughs> yeah, wow. So they didn't know that at the time. So, you know, ignorance is bliss, you know, they went on. So, so I, I said, okay, now that he's not here, I, I, I didn't promise anybody else, so I'm just going to put the equations in there the way I think they should be. Mm-hmm. So I just tried it out. I put it on, and bingo! I matched for the first time ever. I think anybody. I matched the actual transient with my computer results. Hmm. Okay. So I said, so I wrote up the report based on that basis, and I decided that uh, if anybody, if they don't like it, they're going to have to find somebody else to do the work because I am not going to be told how to do any analysis. I just made that rule very early in my career. <laughs> Uh, if you don't like it, you, 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 I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. I'm only going to do what I know is right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so I thought that I was going to get, but I knew, I knew, that, you know, I was be, I was playing it safe though, because I knew that when I r- write these reports, they just ignore you anyway. Hmm. At this time, they didn't. So I started working on the real, the like, plant that was being built, which I, I had a significant role in that too. That was, I, it, this job was 10 times more interesting than the nuclear submarines. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm sitting at my desk one day and my supervisor, I wrote the report up, by the way, I wrote the report up a day. I know, I know they wouldn't like it. The managers never like to read anything in a report that's, that, that, that they don't already know. Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, they, they want you to tell them what they want to hear. They don't want anything new. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I said, uh, I said, screw that. You know, I'm not, I'm not playing that game. So I just, I wrote it up the way I thought it was. And it turns out that there was a guy, his name's Jack Trucian, who was in, actually doing the, the analysis of the actual reactor core mm-hmm. thing that melts down. And he said, I know what that is when I, when I told him what was going on. And I see, and I said, I, I, why I hadn't thought of this, I don't know why. My my brain was just saying that the that the uranium itself, the, the fuel in there, the metal, was was causing it. And he said, no. He says, what's happening is there are little uh, bubbles that form on the on the uh, on the plates where the water goes through the reactor, mm-hmm. and it's like you know they call it nucleate boiling, and 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 uh, it, it it's just like the bubbles in a coffee pot. You know, when you heat it, you see little bubbles, and then eventually it starts to boil. Mm-hmm. Well, when it starts to boil, the reactor melts down. But you can have a little bit of these nucleate bubbles in there. And that was that's called departure from nucleate boiling. We used to call it DNB. We know we had acronyms for everything. You know, you get sick of that stuff. But anyhow, uh, I, I looked at it and I said, uh, those little bubbles are allowing neutrons to escape from the reactor. So that's essentially shutting the reactor down a little bit. And, then, and, and, and so I, uh, I put in this fuel... Uh, thing and and wrote it up and and he he latched onto it and he wrote up a nice big section and we we had a nice big thick point report about 50 pages or 100 pages long mm-hmm. he backed me up essentially so that was good that's the first time any manager has ever backed me up and i think it may have been the last time too i mean maybe once or twice <laughs> in my entire career as a manager actually backed me up when when i've done something really new 
because they always they, they don't know about it, so they don't want to talk about it. I'm speaking with James Miller, author of Planetary Spacecraft Navigation. You can find more information about his work at the Springer website. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. So, so uh, I'm sitting at my desk, getting back to that, mm -hmm. and, and my supervisor walks in and he drops a report on my, on my desk. The, the report, you know. And there were three signature boxes up in the left-hand side. And three signature boxes down at the right-hand corner. Mm -hmm. And my name was there. He said, sign it. You know, you can sign it. I said, okay. So I signed James Miller. Well, the three up in the left-hand, they were the top managers of the, of, of, of the, the nuclear division. Mm -hmm. And the three bottom ones were the, us three guys that had worked on it. Mm -hmm. So I thought it just struck me as really odd because uh, nowadays, at that time, engineers actually were – respected as having uh being professionals mm -hmm. some attempt on management to try to treat an engineer as a professional so when they did something important they actually had to sign i used to i i, I was signing the, the uh that circuit diagrams that went inside the submarine mm -hmm. they use i was i was uh, working those up for each new submarine that came on and i would i would sign it and my name's on it in the my name may have been on one maybe on the bottom of the ocean right now i don't remember whether I did that one or not, yeah. but anyway, uh, it struck me as odd. So, so I, I took the report and I put it in my file cap. And it, was, it was called, and you can get it on ResearchGate now. Mm -hmm. It's called M3A Sex Safety System Setpoint Analysis. Okay. And I, uh, I, the the nuclear division was going out of business. So a few months later, there were only about twenty five or thirty people left in the whole company, and I was one of them. And my boss kept telling me, you got to go find a job. And I said, I'm working on these wiring diagrams for the new thing. I'm actually drawing up. I'm wiring up a submarine, uh, a nuclear power plant, mm -hmm. not a submarine. And, and I said, I don't have time. And so he kept laughing. He says, you're, we're going to, we're, we're, we're going out of business. I says, you got to, if you don't have a job, you got to get a job. You know? <laughs> I don't have time to be going around getting a job. But knowing, of course, that I, all I have to do is walk out on the street and I could find a job anywhere. There was such a shortage of engineers, so we, uh, so so I, I got transferred over to the space division. He oh, he got he went and said go over and talk to the space division. Mm -hmm. I know nothing about space, but I thought hey this is a good idea. I, I'm tired of the nuclear business anyway. Mm. Too much too much BS. Yeah. So I went to work in the space program. So I'm in, I'm working in the space program now. Now roll the calendar ahead fifty years. Well, let me uh, let let me pause you for a second. I just want to elaborate on a couple more things with the the power plant. You mentioned in your email that uh, McMurdo, the reactor at McMurdo, had a little meltdown, and you said the evidence is release of hydrogen. So I think you were kind of touching on that, but can you elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, well, when I told you that uh, uh, they asked me to do this analysis, I had no reason. I had no. Uh, uh, Understanding of why they're asking me to do it. They just told me to do it. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that I was aware of something 
that I kind of regarded as top secret, but now you can find it online. It's it's common knowledge. But three months, when I started working at Westinghouse, three months before that in January, I started in like July. I had worked during the summers though. So I'd worked uh, as a summer student for, for, during the summers of 58, 59 and 60. I worked during those summers. But I, but uh, a nuclear reactor uh, exploded up in um, uh, Arco, Idaho. And it was, it was uh, related to the kind of work that we do, safety. Somebody was pulling the rod out of the reactor. And, and under the conditions, he, he was, he, I, I read just recently about this thing. Just, this guy was 22 years old, a Navy guy, and he's up on top of the reactor pulling the, the rod out. Mm. I thought to myself, what in the world are they doing? Were they doing? And, and, and what happens is it went critical, went prompt critical, they call it. In other words, a bomb is a, a an atomic bomb is a prompt critical reaction. Hmm. But if you get a prompt critical reaction in a commercial reactor, it only lasts for a microsecond or two. And then it just it just blows everything up a little bit, like like a couple sticks of dynamite. And it's over with. It's no big deal. Hmm. So so uh, uh, you, you can't make it. You can't turn a nuclear reactor into an atomic bomb. But you can make a prompt critical reaction, and what it did, it, it, it boiled the zirconium in, in middle, and and zirconium is like uh, sodium. It re, it reacts with water. If you heat it up high enough, you can, you, you can get some really high temperatures. Mm-hmm. If it'll displace hydrogen from the water, and then you get a hydrogen explosion. That was the story that I got. Okay, I was aware that this could happen, and I was aware of the you know what. what so, so when I when I when I went to um, uh, work at Martin Company, they did they had had a hydrogen explosion, I believe. I read this in the paper years later, within you know, and they never told me anything about what happened or why. They, I don't think they even, I don't think they was able to figure out that that the that the uh, that, that, that the hydrogen explosion that they experienced was a partial meltdown of the reactor. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't want to admit it anyway. They wouldn't they don't even want to know that. It's just like, you know, like our current president who doesn't want to know that he has COVID. Hmm. They're like that. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm used to that kind of behavior. So the president doesn't bother me at all because I see that all the time. <laughs> but uh, uh, so so uh, uh, I did all that re- analysis and, and knowing that there, there, that there, that there, there really is a, a problem of danger here. It's not this is not just but they were unaware that there's anything dangerous. Mm-hmm. But I was, because of my experience at Westinghouse, I could put the two together, see. So 50 years later, I joined ResearchGate, which is a, which compiles uh, hundreds of thousands of papers. And, it's, and there's hundreds of thousands of scientists that are members of ResearchGate. Mm-hmm. And it was my, I put all my papers on ResearchGate. And that what, that's what eventually led to my book, my getting a, a contract to write a book. Oh, okay summarizing my papers i'm not really doing any work i'm too old to do any work <laughs> it's uh you're just kind of summarizing or or, or no, re- i'm just taking re- papers that i wrote that nobody ever paid any attention to and putting <laughs> them in a book that, that and now they're paying attention to and now and you also mentioned the fermi equation something about uh you modified the equation okay well the fermi they, the, the equation that te- t- tells you how many neutrons are produced in a reactor the, the control of a reactor is based on what's called delayed neutrons. When a fission occurs, uh, the, what happens is the, uh, the U-235, and, and, and our reactors uh, at uh, 
some marine were highly enriched U-235. That's the same stuff that goes to make a bomb. It's very expensive to make it, by the way. Uh, a commercial reactor has maybe 10% U-235. So it's, it's called highly enriched. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, the Fermi age equation, the neutrons are thermal. In other words, the neutrons come out and they get slowed down by, by it's a billiard ball effect. They pound into the water molecules. That's why you need water because because the hydrogen atoms are what you're looking for and the, and the, and the neutrons hit the hydrogen atoms and they eventually slow down until they're at thermal they call it thermal is like maybe 300 degrees fahrenheit you know, they come out of their million i don't know lot, lot, well, anyhow the thermal neutrons then get absorbed by by the uh, uranium and then it, the uranium undergoes fission and what it does it splits in two well it turns out that it can it can generate all the elements in the periodic table. It depends on how it's split. You could, you could have two protons and, and 90 uh, pr- uh, protons, and then so you get two different elements, or they can split 50-50. But there are uh, five or six elements that are radioactive, and iodine is the one that's the, be- the best one. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you get iodine, it's radioactive, and it takes about 20 seconds for iodine to, de- to release its neutrons. So you have a delayed neutron. That is what enables you to control a reactor. That those that tiny fraction of of of, uh, neut- of, of, of neutrons that come out are are, are absorbed by by uh, radioactive, and then later on they they pop out. And so you, so you, that little uh, um, few milliseconds, I guess, or twenty seconds, something like that. the half life of, of it is like twenty seconds. So that enables you to control the reactor. Okay. So, so anyhow, I, what I did, there's an equation, and Enrico Fermi was the first person to make a nuclear chain reactor, and he did it in the basement of the, un, under the sports stadium in, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what he did is he piled up U-238, I think, and, and carbon. The carbon is the moderator. Water is the moderator in a, in a, in a pressurized water reactor, mm-hmm. and c- carbon is the... Uh, the moderator, and then and then and then the U two thirty. So he just kept piling these bricks up, and as he piled them up, uh, the, the the power level get comes up a little bit, you know. And then all of a sudden, you get a, it starts to sustain itself, goes critical. They call that. Mm-hmm. So this equation, the Fermi age equation, is that is that equation. It's used to analyze every nuclear reactor everywhere. Mm-hmm. It was written down around nineteen forty five or forty one, something like that. And and we use it, you know, and 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 uh, and I I have the this the, the six there's six delayed neutron groups, and I had them in the, in the analog computer and all that. But that equation was sort of a given. Well, I modified it. I put another term in it to account for the temperature of the fuel, mm-hmm. and that was in that report. Okay. Well, I expect that if anybody actually understood what I was doing, they would have gone berserk because, you know. <laughs> It's it's like it's like I, I took Einstein's equation and said, well, he didn't really understand relativity. Here's 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 what's really going on. See, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> but I was right, so I didn't care. Interesting. So okay. fifty years later, mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm on ResearchGate, and this is a, to be a, this incident probably had a lot to do with my writing the book and also a, a lot of the subsequent work I've done in the last ten years because. Mm-hmm. And 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 one of the, my name is James Miller. Okay, now one in every five thousand 
uh, males in the United States is named James Miller. So if I, if you try to look me up like you tried to do, there's, you, you're going to go through thirty hundreds of thousands of them, or, or I don't know. Take take uh, divide three hundred twenty three million by five thousand. That's how many James Millers there are. <laughs> Very common name, especially in Pennsylvania, where, where I'm from. Hmm. So so uh, I'm I'm on ResearchGate, and 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 I'm and what they do is they they have a way of uh, uh, papers get submitted with my name on it. So they they uh, they have this thing where where they'll send you a little message and they'll say, "Did you write this paper?" And I look at it and I say, and I I, I hit things say no, and then did you write this paper? And I hit you know, two or three no's and I'm done. Okay, it, it, happen, it happens every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Well, when I first got onto ResearchGate after I'd been on it for a while, they said, "Did you write this paper?" And I said, "No." Well, it turns out that there were about 200 papers written by James Millers that were on there, and, they, and they're, I'm going through every one of them one at a time, mm-hmm. and I'm hitting no, 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 and and up popped this paper, PM3A Safety System Set Point Analysis, and I, 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 I had completely forgotten that that was the name of the paper that I had written, mm-hmm. and, I, and I was just about to hit the no. When I looked at the authors, the other authors, and I recognized them, I said, hey, I know these guys. And then I looked at them and said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the paper that I wrote. Fifty years later, it's on ResearchGate. Mm-hmm. It was a report, a Martin report. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I all of a sudden you know, got really interested in it. And I started to, trying to figure out, well, the guy who put it on there worked for up at ARCO. He worked for the nuclear, the, the National Nuclear Reactor Whatever you call it, mm-hmm. it's 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 just uh, okay. It's up at Arco, mm-hmm. Idaho. Too cold to go out there. That's one of the reasons why I got into the space program. It's it's located warm. <laughs> yeah, I can threaten to send you to Arco. I said, wait a minute, I don't want to go there. <laughs> you know, uh, I I went onto their website and I got an an instruction for how to analyze a pressurized water reactor, essentially. It is about a 300-page document, and I, I look at it and I start laughing because I think it all those accidents that you have to analyze, and then you have, after you actually after you analyze all these accidents, then you have to write a report, and then that certifies that the reactor is safe. So that's what they do it now. That well, that none of that existed when I was doing it. We just did those. We just made up whatever we felt was an interesting thing, mm-hmm. like like uh, you know the movie The China Syndrome. No, I don't know that one, but wait, go on. China syndrome is 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 if a mel- if a reactor melts down the the heat generated by the molten core when it goes down will will keep gen- melting the rock underneath it and eventually it'll 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 go all the way down to China. Huh. That's the China syndrome. That was the move basis of the movie the China with with Jane Fonda I think or, or uh, no uh, no who was the guy Jack Lemon was the guy Jack Lemon was me huh. in that. But anyhow the. Uh, I kind of forget where I was, but oh, okay. I I got that report, mm-hmm. and I and I thumbed through it a little bit, and I and 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 I and then I went back to the beginning, and I and I turned a couple of pages. Equation number one. <laughs> I looked at it, and I, Fermi age equation. So I I looked at it, and they had the temperature of the fuel in there, mm-hmm. and it I they used the same subscripts that I used in my paper back 50 years ago. 
Mm -hmm. So I thought they got that equation from my paper. They had to. I can I can I can show you the paper. I can show you the, I can show you the uh, that report. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, I, I my claim to fame now is that I'm the only one I I believe in 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 uh, in the last sixty years who has who has made a modification to the Fermi age equation. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's not common. <laughs> well, I tried to I tried to determine whether or not I could get any recognition for this great accomplishment. So I, I wrote an email to a couple of people hmm. and I, and then, and no one ever responded. So I think, well, that's just like JPL. It's just like every place else I've worked at. <laughs> Nobody ever wants to recognize anybody for doing any really good work. Yeah. <laughs> the only recognition you get is that you get threatened to be fired. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's my, that's, 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 that story. That's pretty cool. So you mentioned so a couple things. So the four body problem, as you mentioned in the email, we talked about in a previous interview. But then you also mentioned the uh, development of navigation software for the near mission. Oh yeah, I okay. I, I can tell you. I can tell you that story. Mm -hmm. Okay, if it sounds like I'm criticizing uh, uh, the, the organizations that I work for, I. I don't think of it as criticism or that I'm bitter. I'm not bitter at all. I, I was able to understand how organizations work po politically. Mm -hmm. And, and then I turned it, I, I planned my career based upon taking advantage of what I know. Mm -hmm. I worked at five different companies. They're all the same. Most people that work at JPL, they've, they've never, that's the only place they ever work for. And I don't care how high they go into managers. They have no idea that, that all the bad things about JPL are true in every other company that's around. <laughs> they just don't know that. Mm -hmm. So I know it, and I know how to get around it, too. So anyhow, my job could have been, I was I was assistant navigation team chief for Viking. And, by, and I was, what, uh, about 33, 32 years, 30 years old, something like that. Okay. And, and uh that was a really big project. It's a billion dollars. It's like a ten billion dollars. So that spacecraft, those two spacecraft, would be like five billion dollars a piece. And 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 so there was a lot of attention to that mission. Mm -hmm. This was about nineteen seventy. Yeah, seventy six. Okay. Yeah, seventy was when I started working on it, and, and then we 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 launched it in nineteen seventy six. Okay. I'm speaking with James Miller, author of Planetary Spacecraft Navigation. You can find more information about his work at the Springer website. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. Okay, okay. now I forget what the subject was. Uh, oh, we were talking about the near mission? Oh, the near mission, right. Okay, so so I, uh, 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 after I, th that was over, the next big step in my career would be to become a NAF chief, not just an assistant, but the, the, the chief of something. Mm. Well, I quickly realized that anybody who, who does a navigation operations is not a chief of anything because people who 
perform operations, uh, you don't want them to know too much. Like, for example, a bus driver doesn't have to know exactly how the bus is de designed and, yeah. how, and how to fix the engine mm -hmm. and how to take it apart and all that. You want a bus driver to not have too high of an IQ because they'll get bored. Right. You want a bus driver that's kind of an average guy. And so I love bus drivers because I like average people. Hmm. I think it's good to be average. And, and uh, but you don't want somebody that's below average to be president, though. That's, that's a terrible mistake. Right. Somebody with an IQ of 90 is, is going to make a terrible president. I won't say if there's any examples of that, but you can figure it out. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, an airplane pilot and an astronaut, they're, they're all operators. And they don't really they don't really know that much, and a fighter pilot doesn't know that much about an airplane, but they know how to fly it. Mm -hmm. They can fly better, and they can fly better than I can. So I decided that I don't want to go into navigation operations because uh, I'll never get any respect, and and with respect comes money. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I figure it's a waste of time. To, so most people, they become a nav team chief for one mission, and then they never, then they can do something else. They don't want to do it again. So I figure I'm, I'm done with being nav team chief after Viking. Mm -hmm. So I decided that there was that the same phenomenon existed at JPL that existed at Westinghouse when I worked on nuclear submarines. The culture was that we've done everything uh, that has to be done on navigation, and I did some of it. You know. And now there's nothing else to do. Is all we have to do is just run the software that we have, and and everything will be fine, and we never have to do anything else again. Well, they did that for about thirty years, and that was essentially true. As long as you were sending spacecraft out into space, they had that done really good. You know, you could fly by planets and all that. And and so I would get the job of determining what you have to do to navigate. But there were always new missions coming along, and I and so it, it, it you know, I feared that. When I run out of things to do, I'll just quit and go get a job somewhere else. But then I'm getting a little bit too old for that. Hmm. Almost did at one point. But I, but anyhow, the, uh, the belief that there's nothing new to do in operations prevailed amongst the management and employees. And so they didn't do anything. But a new, a new mission like Galileo comes along. And, and we're, now we're going to go, we're going to orbit Jupiter. And we're going to go and fly by the satellites of Jupiter really close. And I looked at that and I said, well, this isn't, this is a new problem, but I figured out that the existing software would do it. You don't have to, but you need a, a little more software to, to cover, cover some of the details. So I, I'd write that software. I just write whatever is necessary to do whatever you needed to do to, to make it all fit together. But, it, it, but for the most part, we just use the standard uh, navigation uh, or determination software. And, the DSN was very happy with that because the, the deep space network is the basis for most of the navigation at JPL. And so they, as a result, you know, it, it's hard to find anybody that comes up with a new idea at JPL because they're all, they're, they're just, they're just uh, running those tracking stations and trying to get, collect the money for, for, for tracking. Mm -hmm. So they shun away from any mission that has to do with uh, uh, doing anything new. Right. They get what they do is when they when they're stuck with doing something new, like like on biking, they hired Lockheed Martin to, to, to figure out how to land the lander. Hmm. JPL didn't have anything to do with that. Interesting. So when they come along with, with orbiting and landing, orbiting 
an asteroid, uh, they uh, that's new. So they figured out a way of, of sort of doing a half-baked job. I won't use the other word. That's <laughs> and 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 uh, they went out into competition with um, the Applied Physics Laboratory in Baltimore, which is a very a very uh, prestigious laboratory. Mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins. We we submitted a proposal to doing it, and NASA awarded the contract to apply physics lab. Well, JPL goes berserk because they hear, wait a minute, now this is you know this is this is something we want to do, you know. So they managed to talk NASA into having a redo. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know how they do this redo business because you think that you think that there'd be a law, it'd be against the law, but. So, so the, the the basis was that JPL will, will, will bid it again, but this time we're going to make navigation the centerpiece of the of, of the uh, proposal because we knew that Applied Physics Lab didn't know how to navigate anything mm-hmm. to, to planets. They knew how to na- navigate Earth orbiters. They could do that, but an Earth orbiter doesn't go anywhere. You don't have to worry about an Earth orbiter crashing into anything, except when you try to bring it back from 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 space. <laughs> yeah, and that's where they always screw it up. Anyhow, so I, they called me in to do the to do the navigation for this proposal, and uh, and so I'm we're, I'm figuring out. I said, well, we know how to navigate, you know, because we're the great navigators. It turned out we didn't know that we didn't know how to do it any any better than than the applied physics lab, because because the software that we had was 26 years old, and it it, it was totally unsuited to do a a mission around around a um, an asteroid. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know that. The management didn't know that. They just assumed that since uh, they, 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 when you talk about the ODP, it's like you know, it's the gold bar. I used to say this is this is the the standard. Probably it was the most complicated computer program in the whole United States mm-hmm. back back in the sixties. What's the OD, What does it stand for? ODP. Orbit Determination Program. It, it's the program that determines where the spacecraft is in space, mm-hmm. and it's complicated. So I started analyzing it. And I decided that in order to do an analysis, I have to, I need a better orbit determination program. So I have lots of subroutines and stuff that I've written of over 30 years. I've saved every subroutine I ever wrote. I got thousands of them. So I, I, I figured, well, I could put together an orbit determination program pretty fast. So I, it, it took me a month or so. And I, I just wrote, I just wrote an orbit determination program. And then I started analyzing uh, the near mission. Well, we had a big showdown. Uh, Martin or uh, uh, the Pi Physics Lab came and JPL came, and and we and we and we, I guess there were some NASA people there too, and we're all, we're making presentations to to try to figure out which one of us is going to get the contract. So so uh, so the, we, we we were our managers were all prepared because when the, when the guy from uh, Pi Physics Lab gets up, I won't name his name, but he's noted for being kind of a blowhard. Uh, he, he asked him, uh, okay, how are you going to navigate this thing? <laughs> and I thought, well, I want to hear this answer. I want to hear the answer to this question, too. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, it's easy. We're going to get JPL to navigate it for us. <laughs> he had already gone to my section manager and made a deal with him that if he got the contract, we would navigate it. <laughs> so so I, looked, I looked at all of, all of the JPL guys, and I said, 
Well, I win no matter which way it goes. I said, I think I'd rather work for them because you guys are a bunch of jerks. <laughs> I told them that. <laughs> so, so I got, that's how I got into the, to the near mission. Mm-hmm. So now, since I had written that software to, to, to do orbit termination for, for around an asteroid, I knew what needed to be done mm-hmm. so we could, we could quickly modify the, what we call, you know, the, 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 the official software. The, the, the gold bar software, they call category A, B, C, D. A, there's category A, B, C software on Viking. Mm-hmm. My software is always category D. But anyhow, the very bottom, or F if you want to go a little further. <laughs> and, and so my category F software is there, you know. And I, but I knew all the equations, and I knew exactly what needed to be done to fix up the other software. So, so the manager still had the idea that the that the only thing you needed was the ODP so you don't have to do anything else hmm. so, so they uh, uh, wouldn't spend any money it, it would cost a lot of money to do what I did I, my that program that I wrote if, if I wanted to sell it I, I'd charge about 10 million dollars for it hmm. and put the money in my pocket wow. the problem is the government would never pay that kind of money hmm. in fact tell me that I'm an idiot and, and go away you know I, I, it would be a, even proposing it. It would be a negative experience for me. <laughs> so, so I, I sat there and I thought to myself, they really don't understand what's going on, you know. So, so a couple of weeks later, my supervisor comes and says, "Well, he's new. He's new to the job. He's he's been around for a while, but he hadn't done too much in deep space now." And he and he was he was made the nav team chief. They said they asked me if I wanted to be nav team chief, and I said. If I become nav team chief, there's no way I can get this software to work. I said, I can't, I can't do two jobs. So they got this guy who was very good. Mm-hmm. He's not head of, he's now the head of kinetics corporation. He's done, he's, he's really good at operations. He knows how to run computers. So, so he comes to me, he said, we're going to have to use your software. Well, I, I could have, the only deal I made with him was that you have to recognize that I wrote it. You can't just go and tell everybody that we're doing this with the ODP. And lie essentially, mm-hmm. and and I made a couple other. Oh, and 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 furthermore, I said, here's the deal: you're committed to using my software. If you can get the ODP, you've got three years to go. Three years. If you can get the ODP to work, and you want to replace this, replace my software with with the ODP, which is the with which would be category A now. I said at that point, I'm going to quit working on near. Because I am not going to run the ODP. Because you don't need me. Because you got your own program now. Right. So he wouldn't accept that. Um, he wouldn't accept recognizing me. Essentially, he says his, his attitude was that I have to have some cards to play that I keep in my vest pocket that I and I, and I play them whenever it's necessary. But I'm I'm not going to lay all my cards on the table. Hmm. Well, I'm the I'm the lay the cards on the table right away guy I, I, I put them right out there and then and everybody jumps on him and says this is no good this card's no good that card's no good i say good okay now you come up with your own to do it this is my play this is the hand i'm playing mm-hmm. that, that's always the way i work okay so so i i wound up realizing that the only way this is going to they're never going to get the odp to, to do the to do the equations that i had in there mm-hmm. It just takes too long. It, it involves uh, uh, curvature tensors, which are what, which, which are what are baked in, into uh, general relativity. That's what general relativity is all about. 
But not only is it a curvature tensor, you have to integrate the cur curvature tensor, and that's called the variational equations. Mm -hmm. Variational equations are mathematically really hard to come up with, because I've generated many, many variational equations, and I'm probably one of the few people at JPL that really knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. A few, few other mathematicians that are no, are no longer there that, 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 had, that had done it in the past, but to actually come up with a new set of variational equations, it's just, it's it's very difficult. But I knew how to do it because I did so much of it. I, I didn't, it, it, you, you don't you don't get good at some something by being smart. Being smart is is only one percent of the of the pro, of the progress. Mm -hmm. You have to actually do it over and over and over again. Okay. And then you learn it, and then you know it. So I I knew I, I knew what I was doing, but then I, I know that there's something called uh, bugs in software. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, micro, I, I once told my supervisor that uh, that I could, I could write uh, Microsoft. Uh, what do you call what do you call the micro the Microsoft the computer program that runs the computers? Windows. Windows. I said I could write Windows myself. I said that's that's not that big of a deal. And he said, Oh no, you need a team of maybe a hundred guys to write to write uh, Windows, and 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 that's right. That's what they have up up at the. Uh, Seattle. They have a hundred guys writing Windows. Well, there was one guy over in uh, Sweden. He, he he could see through it, and he and he came up with a program called Linux, which replaces Windows. Right. Mm -hmm. Linux is much better, <laughs> but, but Windows is Windows having a monopoly cornered the market. Right. So Linux Linux is odd. So 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 uh, uh, I realized that. Uh, when 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 we're in operations, I can't be sending little emails just to, to to the guys on the team saying uh, we got a new a new a new bug that we, that we fixed. You can download download this bug and it'll and and it'll it'll make your program work better. You see, and then well that that just isn't going to work mm -hmm. when you're doing space operations. The program has to be perfect. It can't have any bugs. Mm -hmm. Now. I realize that that's impossible. This program is way too big and complicated to, to ever get all the bugs out. So I how, how many time. lines of code? Sorry to interrupt. How, how many lines of code are we talking about here? If that's okay, a, well, the, the original ODP, when they were bragging about it, had a million lines of code. Mm -hmm. And but most of those, ninety percent of those lines were unnecessary. Because they, they, they included everything, including the kitchen sink in there. Mm -hmm. As my program, I tailored it down to, to the specific mission I'm working on. So I could get away with, I, I tried to count one time. I never could figure out how to count the lines of code, but I would guess somewhere around 30,000. I told I told somebody one time that my program is, is better than the ODP and it has 30,000 lines of code. And they said, wait a minute. The ODP is a million. How could you do it for 30,000? I said, question. I said, I did it. <laughs> but actually, actually, I had probably a million lines of code around somewhere over the years that I drew on anyway. Yeah. But, but, but so I spent the next three years uh, knowing that I'm never going to be able to get all the bugs out. I, I knew exactly how we were going to navigate the mission because I had written a number of papers describing how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, every time you come up with these, oper these navigation operator people uh, that I'm working with, they always want to do it their way. And I kind of had to tell them, look, we can't 
you can't be, we can't be changing how we do it because I wrote the software to do it a certain way. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do it a different way, then we have to come up with new software and we don't have time. So you're going to have to do it my way or the highway. <laughs> and, and they, and they, it took them a while to, to catch on that that's what they have to do. Mm-hmm. So I wrote them up a little, a little user's guide that told them how to make the specific runs that they'd have to run during operations. And, and, and then I told them that uh, I also gave one of the guys the actual code. And I said, all the code that I wrote can never be patented because I'm automatically it's in the public domain hmm. because I don't want Caltech JPL to get their hands on my code, mm-hmm. which was, which is by the way, is, which is what happened with the, with the program that kinetics was using. And, the, and they're paying JPL and Caltech uh, $800,000 a year or something like that. Or some, not, not that much, but some large amount of money mm-hmm. to use, their, to use their, their software because, because, because they, they thought it was really great to have Caltech patent their software. That's my boss. You know, that was his idea. I said, I refused to patent my software. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. It's in the domain. I just kept telling them that because that was originally the basis that I wrote it on. It was in the public domain. And so was the ODP. It's in the public domain. There is a version of the ODP that's in the public domain. Hmm, so I said, well. I only do public domain software. I don't do any anything that's unless I have the patent. I said, I'll have the I'll, I'll patent it provided I get fifty one percent of the patent. <laughs> and their 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 deal was they'll give you twenty percent. Oh, I see. I said, no, I get fifty one. You get forty nine. Hmm. So so I, I kind of had that little running battle with them for for a long time. So the software that was used for the near mission was my software and it was in the public domain as far as I'm concerned. Well, anyhow, I spent, what I would do is I would run cases, you know, of what I anticipate that they would encounter in operations. And, and, uh, I, uh, I think for about a period of two years, uh, I, I go into my supervisor's office because he wanted me to attend meetings, you know, he had all kinds of things for me to do that were a complete waste of time. I said, look, I got a, there's a problem with my software. I got an error in there and I, I have to fix it. And, and he, and he, and he said, Oh, okay. So I said, I'm going to go have to, I have to go fix it. So it would usually take me about a week to find out where the error was in the program. Mm-hmm. And the way, what happens is that the Doppler data that I'm using is, is good to about, 10 or 11 decimal places. It's actually good to 13 or 13 decimal. 14 decimal places is general relativity. We don't have to go that far. Mm-hmm. But 9, 10 decimal places. So, but but it, the error always shows up in the in somewhere in the 7th or 8th or 9th decimal places. If it, if it showed up in the, if it was a 10% error and showed up in the first decimal place, I'd find it right away and fix it. Mm-hmm. But when it's out there in the 8th or 9th decimal place, that's going to be calculated in a subroutine that's done about five or six levels from from the top. Right. Big program, your your executive program calls subroutines, and then the subroutines call subroutines, and until you get something done, is doing the sine or cosines and stuff like that. That's the very bottom. Well, the errors that I would find have would be in the down near the bottom. So I I would spend a, a good week until I found it. And then when I found it, I would fix it. And then I would make up a bunch of runs to make sure that it was working right. That's what I did for three years because hmm. I found a lot of errors. 
two ears. The last year, I didn't find any ears. When the mission came, we never found, I think I found one uh, problem that I had to fix, but it really wasn't the result of an error. It was a result of, of, of not anticipating the, the, the situation that the program would be used for. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I essentially, um, I think I got gray hair doing this because I realized that if that program was would have a problem in flight, just one little problem, the management would come down like a ton of bricks on me. Yeah. Were, were you a 40 hours a week guy or were you one of those types that worked, spent your own time deep into the night working out the problems? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you hear the, the term 24 mm-hmm. seven. Those are the guys that work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. I was always an, an eight, five guy. I, I, I gave JPL the equivalent of eight hours every day, 40 hours a week, no mm. more than that. Okay. Now, if I decided that because I'm responsible for navigation, not the management, if I decided that something needed to get done, then I would make sure that it got done. If I had, I came in fixing things that, that needed to be done. I got up at night sometimes at two o'clock in the morning and I thought, oh, I think I know what it is. I jump in my car and drive to JPL in the middle of the night, get on the computer and, and fix it. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I was both, both, uh, I was either working um, uh, around the clock. If you have an idea in your head, you can't. You, you have to solve it before you can let it go. Because if you let it go, you have to start all over again. Mm-hmm. So, so I didn't have to do this very often, but I, I sort of, in the back of my mind, kept track of all the hours, and I figured anything over forty that I worked on the average was my my time, and I owned it. Mm-hmm. Of course, now the management doesn't agree with that. They think that. That, that, that I, anything that I do, they own. So, so I, I see. Well, I said, okay, well, we can go into court when, after I retire and I'll sue you and we'll see what we, what happens. <laughs> and and they, they, I knew, I knew they wouldn't do anything. They're too, too dumb to do anything. <laughs> but JPL is a, is a soft Turkey. I mean, they've been sued by so many companies and it's always a secret. I think, I think uh, you, the, the Galileo spacecraft was a dual spin spacecraft. And, and that was a technology that was developed by Hughes Aircraft. Mm-hmm. So JPL comes up with their dual spin spacecraft for Galileo. And, and we all hated it because we, we wanted three axis stabilized. We don't like this idea of spinning spacecraft. That doesn't work good in space. Right. But they, that was such a brilliant idea that they did it. Well, Hughes Aircraft decided to sue them for patent infringement. And I don't know. They, 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 this never got in any news anywhere, but I heard somewhere that they, that, that, Mark, that, that used aircraft collected a, a big, a big paycheck from JPL wow. for that software. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I also heard of other people who have had um, lawsuits against JPL and, and JPL just pays them. They don't, because they don't want any, they don't want to get, they, they, their money comes from running the tracking stations of which there's three state complexes around the world. Mm-hmm. And these things cost about $5,000 an hour. So, so I, I have some plots in my, in my, some of the papers I've written, each data point costs about a thousand dollars and there's hundred, hundreds of them. They continuous tracking all the, all for a year. Yeah, It's a lot of money. Yeah, How many hours are in a year? That's a, Times five thousand. That's that's close to what we're spending. So that so they knew 
that if the if the newspapers gave JPL a black eye, that uh, they would lose a lot of money because NASA would get involved. Next thing you know, there'd be somebody else running the DSN. Mm-hmm. That's the way it goes. And 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 so so uh, so as a result, they're they're always being very careful that they don't get a black eye. Mm-hmm. Right. It means they just you check. You know what, what's 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 a million dollars? You know it's nothing. You can write a check to anybody that wants to sue them for a million. Give them a million. Get them off. We don't want it. We don't want it in a newspaper. Right. That's essentially what Trump does. Only he threatens the Congress. Yeah. JPL wouldn't do that. Yeah. The only time JPL really got lawyers involved was back in uh, 1980, I think it was. Uh, our section is noted for being the section that's not part of the JPL establishment. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, the navigation section. Got it. So we decided, I didn't decide this, but my friend, my like, decided to have a get a union. We got to get a union in here because we're having trouble dealing with management. So they're so, so they, they, they they collected cards. You know, if you get a certain card, you can get an election. Okay. And and so we were going going on and on and on like like this for a number of months. Well, JPL hired O'Melveny and Myers, the most prestigious law firm in Los Angeles, <laughs> to fight the union. Oh wow! And they what they did is. We, we we insisted as an engineer that the programmers were not engineers, so therefore they're a separate bargaining unit. And the reason we wanted the, all the programmers to be in a separate bargaining unit was because they're afraid for their job. The programmers are terribly afraid that they're going to get laid off. Mm-hmm. And, and they always get laid off anyway, but it doesn't matter whether you're afraid or not. <laughs> it's, it's better not to be afraid. <laughs> so the union effort collapsed. But that was the only time that I've ever known of JPL actually actively, publicly seeking outside help. Hmm. Interesting. So, so back to the near mission. So you were talking about, so the so- software you created in your email, you said, even though you said it was perfect, it did have some bugs in it. Yeah. Well, there was one bug that, that, uh, I never told anybody. The, the guy who was uh, running the program, his name's Pete Entrezzi, and I'll mention his name. He's a very good, he, he's the one that's going to, that's primarily responsible now for, for the orbit determination and all that for Osiris Rex, which is going to uh, try to land on an asteroid this month. Hmm. And, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, very concerned about that, by the way. But the, the, only, safe, the only safe landing out of about 20 tries or 10 or 15 tries has been the near mission, the one I did. That was a, safe, that was a good one. Mm-hmm. Reason was because I did it because hmm. I knew how to do it. Right. Okay. I forgot what I what, what the question was. Oh, the near mission, the the um, navigation program, and any bugs in it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The bug. Yeah. There there was one. Okay. I think I can explain this. You'll understand it if if, if I get to, to okay. We're, we're we're we get into orbit. And we're in a 500-kilometer orbit. Eventually, we're going to go down to a 25-kilometer orbit. So we're way far away. So it's a, the spacecraft isn't relatively safe. So we start lowering the orbit. And every time we lower the orbit, we have to solve for a new gravity field. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you, and the big, one of the big uh, contributors to the to solution for the gravity field is tracking landmarks on the, on the comet, on the asteroid. Mm-hmm. So landmarks are craters. So the, uh, we, we had on our team 
uh, Bill Owen. He's probably the best optical navigator in the world. He's really dead knows how to do this stuff. But he would fit little ellipses around the, the rims of craters, and we would define the, the crater location as being the center of that ellipse. Okay, mm-hmm. so not maybe a couple hundred craters that they find, and then we would saw. I would then in my program solve for the location of the craters, and then solve for the gravity field, and and everything was fine. Okay, so now I'm sitting at my desk, and, and Pete Entreason walks into my office. He says, "We have an unstable orbit." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, <"What?" laughs> and I it turns out that I I, I was a by the way, I was the first one to discover this. But if you're in orbit around an asteroid, and it's, a, and a, and it's long and thin, you know, it's not round, mm-hmm. then the rotation of the asteroid could cause a spacecraft to be ejected from orbit. And it could also ca- cause it to crash. Mm-hmm. The, the, the gravity uh, harmonics, that we call them, it's like a dumbbell rotating. If you have a sphere, you don't have a problem. But if you have a dumbbell, the ends of the dumbbell can 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 cause a gravity assist on the, on the spacecraft and throw it out of orbit. Hmm. So he had a solution and, and, and there was an, a rising exponential, an oscillating rising exponential, as I recall it, in, 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 the, in, the, in the solution, which indicates that the thing is, is unstable. Mm-hmm. So I said, I just immediately said, I think I know what that is. And what it was, was there, there, the Earth, consider the Earth. The Earth is uh, squashed at the poles, and and and, and it's it's bigger at the equator, mm-hmm. and that that's called a J two in, in terms of the gravity harmonics. Okay. Now there's a J three, and that's the asymmetry. That's when that's when the center of gravity is 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 higher than than the center of the the center of the ellipse and the center of the gravity are aren't aren't together. Then you then you get this pear shaped. There's a pear shape instead of an ellipse shape. Mm-hmm. Let's say the southern hemisphere is the fat part of the pear, and the northern hemisphere is the the other part of the pear. So that asymmetry uh, can can exist. Well, I asked him. I said, "What's your C three coefficient?" And he looked at it. and It was like uh, the, the 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 coefficients on the Earth are like on the order of ten to the minus fifth, one part in. 100,000 or something like ten thousand. Okay. But the but the gravity harmonics on an asteroid that we were dealing with are like point one. They're huge. It's very nonlinear. And and those 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 uh, um, uh, sh- it's because of the shape. The shape is like like a like a football. Mm-hmm. So that can a dumbbell would be the ultimate shape. That would be a, a coefficient of one. But we're but our, ours was up to like point three. Well, it was a big. So what happened was, he, his his C three was way too big. I looked at it and I said, "Oh, that's too big." And then I then it occurred to me what the problem was. When you saw when you when you process all these landmarks and tracking data and everything like that, you know, it, you throw all this data into a. It's like, it's like it's like making a, a stew. You know, you throw a bunch of ingredients in there, and then and then out comes the result. You know, mm-hmm. and when you see the result, you just pray that it, that it, something bad doesn't go wrong. Hmm. Here's this rising exponential. So I, I decided that what happened was that the the software that I had, if if you if you know the answer, if you're really close to knowing the the the, the answer, 
it's in the linear range. So the software will gom on, and, and it's all linear theory. So if, as long as it's a straight line, you can come in and, and get the solution. If it's if it's nonlinear, then the nonlinearity can cause it to hang up and, and somewhere else, and you get a, you, you you can't get a solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's the biggest problem with orbit determination. That's why it's called an art, not a science. Because you have to be aware of all these nonlinearities and take care of them. Because you can't mathematically, you can't. So, so I figured that the center of gravity, which we know exactly where it is. In fact, when I was working on Galileo, I'm doing some analysis, and and, and I, I told him how accurate we were. He says, he says, he says, you know the you know the center of gravity of Jupiter to like a to like 100 kilometers. What does that mean? It's 70,000 kilometers in diameter. How could you possibly know it that accurately? I, I said, I know exactly where the center of gravity is. I have no idea where the center of Jupiter is. Mm-hmm. See, so the center, the actual physical center can be displaced away from the center of gravity, and you, and you can't see it in the data. Hmm. It just gets hung. So we were hung up about 100 meters. The center of gravity was it was about a hundred the center of the uh, of the asteroid was about a hundred meters on the z axis that's the, that's the axis it spins upon uh, about a hundred meters so I said oh so, so I, th- I think I know how to fix this real quick so I I, I went into my office and, and I and I wrote a computer program and what I did is I moved I moved the um, uh, the center the, the, the asteroid uh, down 100 meters about that, I forget the exact number, what I figured it was. And then I had to move all the landmarks 100 meters. And then I had to move everything else, all the gravity coefficients that I'd already determined. I had to, I had to go in each coefficient and determine its sensitivity to a z-axis displacement and change the coefficients. There, and there's like about 150 of these coefficients. Mm-hmm. And then the... the it, once I did all this, it occurred to me. I said, "Wait a minute, now, I'm I, I'm going to uh, since I moved the the um, the orbit now. So the orbit's tied to the to the to the asteroid. Since I moved the orbit, the Doppler data from the Earth is going to see that, and it's not going to like it because it's it's going to be displaced. So in order to make the uh, the Doppler data stay the same, I've already determined the orbit of the spacecraft pretty well. Mm-hmm. I move. I had to move." The, ast- the ac- actual asteroid about 100 meters, the ephemeris, in other words. Mm-hmm. Well, s- since I was responsible for determining the ephemeris, I figured that you know, I have the authority here to do everything because I was responsible for practically everything that had to do with the, uh, the navigation. I went in and I, and I changed the location of the asteroid by 100 meters. Mm-hmm. And I made the run, and boom! It glummed right on. Once it once it once it got near to the to the, it, it brought it, it. It just, I just got the I got the uh, solution exact. Mm-hmm. I was so well. I'll tell you. So I went back to Pete, and I said, "Here's what you do. Here's the new here's the new program, or here's the new solution." I said, yeah, "This this will work from now on." I said, "Don't tell anybody what happened." So I don't want any questions about this. So do they um do they just transmit a repl- you know, like an overwrite program to the to the satellite or to the to the spacecraft, or how, how is that? How is the change made logistically? There's no there's no, there's no software on the spacecraft, so okay. you, 
you can you can get data from the spacecraft, but you, but there's no computer programs. All the computer programs are on the ground. Ah, okay. program was the only computer program you had to worry about. So I just changed it and gave him a new version for the program. Oh, okay. I so see. Actually, actually, I think I just gave him the new data. Okay. Then I guess gave him the solution, and then it just and then then the program. Well, there's nothing wrong with the program. It just glommed right on once you got in the inside the linear range. Mm-hmm. This is the end of part one of this interview. Part two will be published shortly. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter to keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.